just pray with me? Uh, <laughs> great are you, Lord. Father, I just pray that as we come to your word, that that would be the cry of our hearts. That it would be the heartbeat that drives us as we read your scripture. That you are great. And that our response to your greatness is just to pour ourselves out to you in worship and in praise. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, this morning, uh, if you've got a uh, hard physical Bible with you, we encourage you to, to find Romans 9. If you don't, uh, we utilize the YouVersion Bible app, and I'd encourage you to go find that in the App Store, download it, open it up, uh, and we've got sermon notes in the events tab uh, of that app if you want to find us there, all right? So uh, to this morning, we're going to be in Romans 9. We, uh, this summer, and, and actually like we can scope out and go to this year at Christ Community Church, uh, we're working through the book of Romans. And uh, we're working off of this idea, we're seeing this theme from Romans 1.1 that, that we've been set apart just as Paul was set apart. And, and we're exploring that from a lot of different angles. And um, this summer we're just doing what we call the rest of Romans. And, and it's uh, some chapters that we're not doing longer series on. And so we did Romans 6 and, and 5 and 7, uh, and, and we skipped 8 because we're going to be coming back to Romans 8 in August and September uh, in a series that we call Nothing Can Hold You Back. And uh, today then, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, all right? So um, let me set Romans 9 up before we read it with this story, if I can. Ravi Zacharias uh, has a, an incredible ministry uh, where he travels around the world. He speaks uh, on behalf of Christ. He preaches, but, but he also specializes in something called apologetics, where he's defending our faith. Uh, he's defending the faith that we read about in Scripture. And in 1971, he tells the story of uh, being in Vietnam. And while he was there, he had a translator uh, whose name I'm going to butcher, but I'm just going to call him Heen. And Heen became a Christian as he translated for Ravi and other missionaries. Uh, and because he converted to Christianity, he was arrested for aiding American missionaries. When he was imprisoned, uh, he was cut off from reading anything in English. That was part of his, his torture and his punishment. And uh, after years of this, after years of this, he began to give up his faith. He began to have questions. Maybe he thought, I've been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe my whole life has been governed by these lies. One can understand why these thoughts would have been in his head. Maybe the West has deceived me. And the more he thought, the more he moved towards a decision. And finally, he made up his mind. He determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore. He would never think of his Christian faith again. Well, the very next morning, he was assigned to the duty of the duty, cleaning the latrines. And as he went to the latrines that morning and he cleaned out a tin can filled to overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what he thought was English printed on one piece of paper. For fear of being tortured, 
punished. He hurriedly washed it off, slipped it into his hip pocket, and planned to read it later that night. He was anxious and excited. He hadn't been allowed to read English in years. And under the mosquito net that night, after his roommates had fallen asleep, he pulled out a small flashlight, and shining it on the damp piece of paper, he read at the top corner, Romans, chapter 8. And he read these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I tell that story because that's the end of Romans 8. And it sets up what we're going to read in Romans 9. Romans 9. If you would, follow along with me. Paul writes, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all. Great are you, Lord, right? Praised forever. Amen. He continues, Now it's not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, I have loved Jacob but I've hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. And so then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And you will say to me, therefore, well, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? But what is formed to say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved, 
And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left this offspring, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Father, this is your word and we are so grateful. And yet at the same time, we are so human And we read some of this and we're like, what? (laughs) And so I pray in this moment, Father, that that the Spirit would come, the Spirit would teach us, that the Spirit would help us to understand your word to us and how we best live in light of the truth that you are great. We thank you for your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. The question that Paul asked the Romans in verse 20 is very difficult. Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Well, this verse, it uncovers one of the truths that we most like to deny. We would rather be God than see God. We would rather be God than see God. We might say that we want to see God show up in our lives, but in the depths of our soul, when we really trim all of the outside stuff away, we would rather be God than see God. We would rather be the creator rather than the creation. We would rather be in control than think that there is one who is greater than us. You say, oh, no, not me. Not me, Blake. And yet we bring that down to our daily lives and how we might apply that. And, and we say prayers like, God, I really don't like my job. Would you just give me a new one? And while you're at it, would you make sure that it pays more, lets me work from home, and starts in the next two weeks so that I, you know, since I already put in my two weeks at the job I don't like, could you just make sure and answer that in the next two weeks? We would rather be God than see God. Maybe the prayer is, God, Give us a child. And while you're at it, please make sure that I'm pregnant in the next two months. And make it a girl because we all know that clothes for boys just aren't cute. Right? We would rather be God than see God. God, heal this person that I love. And if I don't see any improvement soon, I'm just going to start doubting that you really love me. If I don't see any improvements at all, I may just start questioning whether or not you're even real. God, enough is enough. Why am I always the one going through hard things? God, just make it stop or I'm giving up on you. We would rather be God than see God. Because you see, it's not that God can't do any of these things. It's not that he can't answer those prayers. It's that we believe that we know how things should happen best. We would rather be God than see God. How many of us struggle to celebrate the hope found in poop-covered scripture 
because we're too busy focused on the years of torture that he had to go through to read it. We would rather be God than see God. Why is that? Why is that true of us as humans? Well, it goes back to the garden, right? It goes back to the garden. In Genesis 3, 5, Adam and Eve, they've taken the apple. We read this. It says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It doesn't say you will be God, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, when sin entered the world, we became like God. The only problem is that we weren't created to be God in our world. We were created to reflect God to our world. You know, the thought of being God sounds really exciting. To be in control. To be able to dictate how things go. But the reality of being God is excruciating. To think of all the responsibility that rests on his shoulders. And even still, we find ourselves drawn to opportunities to be the big fish. We like to be in charge. We seek out opportunities where we can have power. We love the power of control until we experience the shame of failure. We love the power of control until we experience the shame of failure. I had waited a long time, what I felt like was a long time, I was a college kid at the time, to be the football player who had the honor of leading incoming recruits on their tour of campus. I wanted to be the guy that all these incoming recruits looked to as you know, the star player. I was too in love with the power that came as guys recognized I was a quarterback, I would lead the group around campus answering questions, all those things. They, they asked questions about college life, being on the team, how fun it was to play on Saturdays. And I wrongly loved every minute of it. But I won't forget the day that I tripped over the sidewalk. Came tumbling down to the pavement in front of them. You want to talk about shame. My 6'4 frame really did feel about an inch tall. And it was probably only about six inches tall because I was laying on my face. I knew that campus so well that I'd even found the places to get tripped up. At least that's what I told them because I was embarrassed. <laughs> Here's the reality. Many of us walk through life alternating in that cycle that I just described. We, we move between trying to gain more power and then experiencing the shame that comes when we fail to steward what God has given to us. It's horrendous. It hurts every time we fail. And it's all because we would rather be God than see God move in our lives. We may say that we want to see him, but deep down we want to be him. And so the question becomes, is there a way to stop the cycle? How do we get off this pedaling bicycle of power and shame, power and shame? Well, Paul makes an interesting observation near the end of chapter 9. He's comparing the Jews and the Gentiles, and he notes that, that the Jews pursued righteousness and didn't get it, and the Gentiles, on the other hand, didn't pursue righteousness, and they still got it. And Paul reaches this conclusion, if you'll look back with me, in verse 32 and 33. He says, why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. And then I love this phrase, they stumbled 
over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Isn't that good news? Have you ever described Jesus as your stumbling stone? Oh, Jesus, he's the one that trips me up. He's the one that I stumbled over. And you see Paul's conclusion, in other words, is that our righteousness is not primarily connected to what we do, but rather it is connected to the one who has tripped us up. Jesus has tripped you up. Did you ever think that he would be the one that that really wanted you to fall on your face so that you would trust in him? But he certainly is. How God's grace gets to each of us is a testimony to how we've stumbled over the stumbling stone. When we tell the story and realize how crazy it is that the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross some 2,000 years ago came back to life so that you could live a shame-free life, and that news got to you, it's crazy. You realize that it's, it's truly a stumbling stone that you just happened upon. And the beauty of God's grace is that it never ceases, ceases to be surprising. God always does the same things but he's too creative to do the same things the same way. For the last 2,000 years, God's grace has been tripping people up when they least expect it. Paul, who wrote this book, he was shocked when the Lord struck him blind on his way to Damascus and showed him the true light. The Philippian jailer that, that Paul would reach through his ministry, he was asleep when an earthquake awoke him to God's grace. Imagine being that guy. Ravi's translator had no clue that a job translating would lead him to a man named Jesus. I think about our context here some 2,000 years later. Christine Salmon didn't realize that her realtor would be a lead-in to real-life change. William Garcia didn't realize that going to a tutoring class at Midland would introduce him to life's greatest teacher. Tim had no clue that a meeting at Eminence Village's apartment office would lead him to opening his heart to God. The people that we meet this summer as we prayer walk the streets of Shelbyville may look back and realize someday that, that meeting you was the first time that they stumbled over the stone of Jesus Christ. Ah, that is grace. That when we would least expect it, we would stumble over the stumbling stone that has made a way for us to be with the Creator God forever. Realize this. Today, you've stumbled over the stumbling stuff. Maybe God's grace to you was a Christ-centered home that had you in church from day zero. That was a great stumbling stone. Maybe God's grace to you was a friend that brought you to VBS or church camp when you were a kid or a student. Maybe God's grace to you was a spouse that loved you all the way to Jesus. They just hung in there with you. Maybe God's grace to you is simply being here today, realizing for the first time that the God of the universe has placed the good news of Jesus in front of you to trip you up, and he is tripping you up today with the reality that his son loved you enough to die on a cross to forgive your sins and come back to life to secure your eternity with God. Whatever your story The God of the universe has chosen to place Jesus Christ, the stumbling stone, in your path. 
So what does all that gargly goop in the middle of Romans 9 have to do with that? Verses 6 through 13, we realize that when you stumble over Jesus, you find your true purpose. When you stumble over Jesus, you find your true purpose. Verse 11 says this, For though her sons had not been born yet, or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. What does it mean when it says God's purpose according to election? Well, Paul in this paragraph is illustrating from the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau. You can find that in in the book of Genesis. They were born twins. Esau is the oldest by a hair, but Jacob ends up being the one who receives his father's blessing. And that was a big deal in those times. In those times, receiving the blessing was kind of like receiving all of the inheritance. He basically receives all that. There was no executor of the estate that made sure things were fair. And Paul explains that the choice to to bless Jacob instead of Esau wasn't based on how much the boys were liked by their parents. It wasn't based on the work that they did, but rather it was based purely by the calling of God. God had his purpose, which man may never know. And God's purpose in calling them gave purpose to the lives of Jacob and Esau forever. The things that they did in their life were according to God's purpose for them. And because they recognized that, their plans changed. Their plans changed because of God's purpose for them. So my question is, what is God's purpose for you? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, For he chose us in him, for God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before he created the world, he chose you in Christ to be holy and blameless in love before him. Before the world was made, God had thought of you. He had chosen you to stumble over the stumbling stone of Christ. He knew he was going to put this rock in your path so that you might be able to stand holy and blameless before him. Your entire purpose is to be able to stand before the God of the universe, holy and blameless. And that is what you were made for. That is why he chose to create you. And so I have to ask you this question. Does God's purpose for your life change the plans that you have? Does God's purpose for your life change the plans that you have? Or would you rather be God? Would you rather be God and live life according to your plan? Or would you rather see God and change your plans according to his purpose? There's something else to this idea of stumbling over the stumbling stone to God's mighty power that we have to to deal with. And it's that privileges come through the pain of stumbling over Jesus. Privileges come through the pain of stumbling over Jesus. Verses 14 through 18, we read about the story of Pharaoh and Moses. Verse 15 in particular, we read this, For he tells Moses... God does, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In illustrating from the lives of Moses and Pharaoh, from a a human perspective, neither of their lives make sense, okay? Neither of their lives make sense. Moses kills an Egyptian before fleeing to the desert to avoid the punishment, and then God uses him to free his people from Egypt. 
makes no sense. Pharaoh grows up with every luxury, every resource, the best education, only to lose his kingdom, his son, and ultimately his life as God strips him of everything. To go back to another series we've done, it it doesn't seem fair, not fair. Paul even asks in the text, is there injustice with God? But he answers confidently that there is not. And he cites this, this, this phrase that is so difficult. God will have mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. This is the answer to these difficult questions that we want to ask, like, why must we experience pain? Why do I have to go through this? Why do bad things happen? And you see, the truth rests not on our ability to understand it or accept it, But the truth rests on God's word alone. And this shouldn't trouble us. However, it does give us great comfort. We just have to see that the many trials and struggles of this life are simply rocks that point us back to Jesus. Privileges that come through pain. We can find great comfort by simply trusting that we are not God. And yet we have the privilege of knowing him and being loved by him. I love the comfort that comes from Isaiah 43.1. It says, now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You're mine. God says this to Israel, but since Christ came, it is true of all who are in Christ. No matter what you face, the one who created you has redeemed you. He has bought you back and called you by name. You are God's. God has chosen to trip you up with Jesus. But will you choose to trust in him? You see, many want to have a conversation about God's control here, and they want to eliminate the human will that he has given us. But that is what I call a false dichotomy. Both of those things are part of God's plan. He controls and knows all things, and he has given us the ability to make choices. And so we say this, God's will for you is to choose his will because he has chosen you. God's will for you is to choose his will because he has chosen you. And so you you ask the question, like we must ask the question, how do I choose God's will? How do you choose his will? And I would simply say, honor God's power by trading in yours. Honor God's power by trading in yours. Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to pull it up. I didn't put it in my notes. But I love this passage. Psalm 34, 4 and 5 says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he rescued me from all my fears. And those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. They will never be ashamed. You see, when we come back to Romans 9, it tells us that when we stumble over the stumbling stone, he takes away our shame. There is no shame in falling down when we trip over Jesus. And that is the key to trading in our power. Because you see, the pressure to prove yourself is pushed to the side. 
What, what replaces it is a relationship with the Lord that, that brings both conviction and comfort. You see, there's a difference between shame and conviction. Shame is your sin screaming in your face that you are bad. You do bad things. But conviction is your father lovingly reminding you that your sin is not who you are and you should walk away from it and return to the father. You know, I began today by telling you the first part of Heen's story, of Ravi's translator. Heen signed up for continual latrine duty because he found that one of the officers at that prison was repeatedly using pages of scripture as toilet paper. So each day he willingly, to the surprise of everyone, returned to latrine duty washing off pages of Scripture, bringing God's Word into his life, and to think we just open up our phones. <laughs> it's crazy. Eventually, Heen was set free. He was released from prison, and he began to build a boat for his escape from Vietnam. And while he was building his boat, 53 others joined him in his escape plan. All was going according to plan until a short while before the date of their departure when four Viet Cong knocked on Heen's door. And when he opened it, they accosted him and they said that they had heard he was trying to escape. And they had one question. Is it true? Heen immediately demanded, uh, denied it. And he went on to you know, distract them with some story and to explain his activities and they apparently were convinced, and they, they left. When they left, Heen was relieved, but he began to be disappointed with himself. Here I go again, Lord. I'm trying to manipulate my own destiny. I'm too unteachable in my spirit to really believe that you can lead me past any obstacle. I'd rather be God than see you work. And so he made a promise to God in that moment, hoping that the Lord would not take him up on it. And he prayed that the Viet Cong would come back. And if they did, he would tell them the truth. Of course, like a normal human being, he thought that will never happen. A few hours before Heen and 53 others were to set sail, Viet Cong knocked on his door. We have sources. We know you're trying to escape. Same question. Is it true? Yes. I'm trying to escape. I've got 53 others. His question back, are you going to imprison me again? As he tells the story to Ravi, he says there was a pause. And then they leaned forward and whispered, we want to escape with you. So, in an indescribable escape plan, all 58 of them found themselves on the high seas, suddenly engulfed by a violent storm. And Heen fell with his face in his hands, crying out to God, Did you bring us here to die? God, you gave me the words of Scripture in prison. You protected me from the Viet Cong. You got us out of Vietnam. Did you bring us here to die? 
And as he concluded telling his story to Ravi, he said, Brother Ravi, those four Viet Cong were all fishermen who were quite skilled at handling a boat. And if it were not for the sailing ability of those four Viet Cong, we would not have made it. Would you rather be God or would you rather see God? And are you willing? Are you willing to honor God's power by trading in yours? Maybe trading in your power doesn't look like submitting yourself to the Viet Cong. But each day in our lives, there are opportunities for us to lay down the power, the opportunities for power that we have to allow God's power to rush in and do things that we never could have asked or imagined. And so this week, what I want to challenge or ask each of us to do is to just make a list and each day add at least one thing that you've been trying to control. One thing you've been trying to control that you need to hand over to God. And on Saturday, I don't, I don't know what this looks like, but it's just cool to think about that our church on Saturday will all be presenting to God a list of things that we don't need power over anymore. That we lovingly submit to the God who is in control of all things. Will you do that with me? Will you do that with me? Honor God's power this week by trading in yours. I would be remiss if I didn't close by sharing the story of someone that I felt like embodied this idea the most. You know, we read Romans chapter 9 and it's so hard to, to imagine that you know, we're not in control and like there, there's just stuff that happens that we can't explain, that God has a purpose and a plan that is beyond our thinking. We're just like, man, I just, I just want to wrestle with that. I don't want to just like hand it over. But when we give up control, God breaks our heart for others. And we don't see that, I don't think, anywhere else better than in the life of the author himself. Look back with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. You see, he's, he's wrestling with this. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I've got great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, it's breaking him down to think it's breaking him down to think that there are those who are apart from Christ. It's breaking him down to think that there are those who don't know him, that haven't stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul, who before Christ was a man of of power and influence and authority, of education. He laid it all down to be beat in prisons, to be made fun of. And he did it because he recognized that the power of God was something for him to see. And he wanted to lay down himself so that he could continue to see it. When we give up control, God breaks our heart for others. Paul wanted nothing more than for people to know Christ 
He didn't want them to be stuck in the pattern of power and shame. He just wanted to join us in stumbling over Jesus one day at a time, finding our purpose through him and being reminded of the privilege that we have to suffer with Christ. This morning as the band comes back up and we respond to the good news of the gospel, we share as a church family in taking the Lord's Supper. We take a piece of bread, representative of Christ's body. We dip it in juice, representative of Christ's blood, and it reminds us of of Christ on the cross. And so this morning, as we think about that, we think about the suffering that Christ went through. And we're reminded that we're not only saved by Christ, but we also have the privilege of suffering with him. Don't miss that. We, we have the privilege of suffering with him so that others might see the love of God through us. Nobody wants to talk about that. We just want to be saved. To be saved is to be glorious, and to suffer with him is a privilege. So today, maybe you're like me. The Lord has stubbed my toe. I've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And I'm here to let you know that Jesus is the rock who will stub your toe and give you a place to go. If today you realize for the first time that you've been trying to be God, but you've never laid down your life and, and given it to God, then I'll be in the starting point room up in the front and I would love to have that conversation with you about how you give your life to Christ, how you meet him in the waters of baptism, dying to yourself and being raised to new life. But for those of you who maybe are like me, if the Lord has stubbed your toe, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to realize that God has broken your heart for others because of his love for you, and his love for all people. If he stubbed your toe, that's part of the story that he has given to you to reach others with the good news of Christ. Don't miss the opportunity that you have to do that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, there is no shame in stumbling over you. So, Father, I just pray that uh, as we respond to the good news today, that you would comfort us with the truth that you are God and we are not. Father, I know that there are so many difficult things about this life, and and as we consider those, uh, God, I pray that we would uh, just look back to you with those things and know that it is a privilege to suffer with you. It is a privilege to to allow the light of Christ to shine through our lives. Help us to lay down our power in honor of yours. Father, as we respond, uh, there are those in this place that you are calling to you, that you are asking to lay down their lives and and to to repent, to turn to Christ, to not be ashamed. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage to respond in this place today. Pray that that you would uh, let them know that you want them, that you love them. You're lovingly calling them back to yourself. Change their plans because of your purpose for their life. Jesus, we just say thanks as we close. We say thank you for suffering 
so that we might have a Savior. It's in your name we pray.